Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. I'm Jenny Jagman. I'm Eva Garmendia. And I'm Po Ching Tang. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the AMR Studios. Today, we have an interview that Eva did with Dr. John Rex when she was at a course in Annecy, France in October 2019. So Eva, why don't you tell us some about this course? Yeah, so I was at the interdisciplinary course on antibiotics and resistance. And this is actually a very intense course. We were there for like nine days. I think I probably mentioned it before because I was super like <laughs> wrap up about it when I came back. Um, it's a very detailed, intense course about uh, antibiotics, antibiotic resistance, antibiotic research and development. And it, the good thing about this course is that it's so... On-site, you get contact continuously with the faculty members as well, all the teachers and everybody that is there to bring their expertise. Um, You learn so, so much. So while I was there, I had the opportunity to interview some people. Um, This is actually the first of them that we are going to feature in the the podcast. And it was really, really good. And I think I learned a lot in nine days. I never, I didn't think I could learn that much in nine days about antibiotic resistance and uh, mostly the research and development. I think it's really focused on how can we bring new drugs yeah. into the market. And this is what John is going to focus on in the interview as yeah. well. He's a little bit of a, I don't know, catch-all guru in the field, I feel like. So we'll let him introduce himself and talk about his background. Yeah, we hope you enjoy. Enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Today we have with us Dr. Jan Rex from the United States. He's also part of the course in antibiotic and resistance in Annecy. And we're going to learn a little bit about his uh, path through the AMR world. John, could you please introduce yourself to our audience? So I'm John Rex. I am an internist trained in infectious diseases. I have spent 30 years working in and around the problem of antibiotics and infections. Uh, so I read a little bit about your bio. You did your first professional career in academia, and it was not really related to resistance or antibiotics, was it right? Well, so I was a practicing infectious diseases clinician for my first 15 years, and I worked on developing drugs for treating fungal infections. Fungal infections, which is part of what we talk about our audience, that AMR is not just antibiotic resistance, it's antimicrobial resistance, so fungal infections are also included there. And after that, where did you move into? What was your field of interest? Well, I was on the faculty at the University of Texas Medical School at Houston for about 10 years. And then towards the end of that time, I moved into regulated industry and I took a job with AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals to head their, the clinical development program for their anti-infective group. And I spent 15 years approximately doing that, ultimately leading to several drugs coming onto the market at the end of that period of time. And then that group was sold to uh, some other companies. And I then went into more of a freelance mode. I now work as a consultant to Wellcome Trust. I am the chief medical officer of a small company that has a novel mechanism antifungal agent in phase two. And I do some work to try to spread the word about antimicrobial resistance. And I can say everything I do is one of three things. It's either developing a new drug, making it possible to develop a new drug, or making it possible to get paid for having developed a new drug. Yeah, we had some people talking before about the fact that the economic models, as they are normally, they don't accommodate the antibiotic business any longer. They used to, but not anymore. I wonder, have you seen a change of drug development as a reaction of the AMR crisis? And how has this worked? There's clearly been a change. And the big shift started in 2007-8 when all antibiotic development in the world stopped briefly and we rewrote all the guidelines for how you would develop a new antibiotic and that shifted us away from a historical pattern of developing lots of oral drugs for upper respiratory illnesses to an intense focus on developing agents for systemic infections and As a consequence of well over a decade's worth of work at this point, there are very standard tools for developing antibiotics for serious infections such as pneumonia. And, you know, that along with the the payer problem has caused companies to really shift into addressing the specific 
gaps that have been identified by groups like the CDC and the WHO. What do you think are the main challenges that is preventing for this market or for these drugs, new drugs to come into the market? Because some of them, they don't really even make it. Some of the companies, they do bring into the market and then they don't sell it and then they go bankrupt. But before getting there, what are the main challenges that they have to go through? Well, there's uh, this whole week, I think you guys have been being introduced to that. I'd say that the, the core issue is that they're hard to discover, they're hard to develop, and you don't get paid. I mean, that's that's simple to say, those three things. But first, they're hard to discover. Antibiotics are interesting in that they're one of only two classes of drugs where the purpose of the drug is to kill something that's alive. And the only other class that does that is the cancer drugs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, living organisms really don't want to die. I mean, that's (laughs) that's not where they're headed. And they have a lot of defenses. And so finding things that selectively kill is just hard to do. Steam and fire and bleach are great antimicrobials, but they're not drugs at all because they won't leave you alone. And then the the next part is that drug developing a new antibiotic is curiously difficult. I, I think this surprises a lot of people when they come into this area. And I think of it as a, as a true paradox. We want new drugs for bad bugs, but at the same time, we don't want to be in a position where the existing drugs are failing. Mm -hmm. So we always want to have good drugs available to us. But we can also see that resistance is coming. And so what you'd like to do is develop a new drug before resistance is a big deal. So in a sense, you're developing a new drug to be used tomorrow, not today. And that's different from like developing a new cancer drug, where if I invent a new cancer drug, we're going to use it today on people mm-hmm. who need it today. But with a new antibiotic, it's the place where people say, well, that's wonderful. I am so proud of you for developing the new antibiotic. That's really important. As a matter of fact, it's so important that we're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. And from a societal standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. We should not use a new antibiotic unless you don't have another good choice. But from a, the standpoint of the company that has spent, you know, it's you're easily talking 100 to $150 million to bring a new drug to market. And that would actually be a super cheap development. It's more likely that if you start from scratch and work through all the things that don't work, the things that are no good and all that stuff, you'll have spent $500 million to a $1 billion. I mean, so the typical estimate for bringing anything to market is one to one and a half billion dollars. And the recent drug that where the company went bankrupt to Cajun, they had spent about $750 million. Get a new drug, come all the way through, get approval, $750 million, and then they go bankrupt because we don't pay for antibiotics in a way that makes sense. We pay for them per use, and that doesn't actually reflect their real value. In which direction do you think the incentives and the way the market works around antibiotics should go? There's a group of us that spent three years as a consortium, a project called Drive AB that was uh, out of the um, European Commission's Innovative Medicines Initiative. And there were about 100 of us that worked on this problem and spent a lot of time asking the question you just posed, what are the incentives? And the Drive AB group actually made a list of about 40 different possible ways that you could incentivize development. None of them are perfect but the ones that make the most sense are the ones where you very deliberately pay for antibiotics in a way that is more like buying a fire extinguisher or buying life insurance. That is, you, you recognize that it's important to have it, mm-hmm. like the fire extinguishers that are sitting in the corners of this room. We're glad that they're there. And the fact that I didn't need to put out a fire, that's great, but I still want to have a fire extinguisher. The other way you can sometimes say it is, I hope most of us have life insurance. Mm-hmm. Did your life insurance pay off today? No, hopefully it would. Are you yeah. unhappy about that? Yeah. No, not mm-hmm. really. So if you think about it, there are some things where the value of the thing, a lot of the value is in being there rather than being completely used. So I, like the fire extinguisher, I just, I'm not going to get wet, okay? But I'm really glad it's here. And, and so antibiotics, you can say, have values like, Because they exist, it's safe to go and get your hip replaced. It's Mm -hmm. safe to have a a premature baby. We can do things for people because we have antibiotics. But when I walk into the hospital each day, the thing I'd most like to do is walk past the pharmacy, look at the antibiotic on the shelf and say, gosh, I'm glad that's there. 
and I'm not going to put it into a human being, but I'm really glad it's there. And that's the trick. So how do we do that? How do we pay for antibiotics like fire extinguishers? Well, that's a societal thing. You know, we have to agree to pay for it sort of the same way we pay for roads. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a community level service that we're paying for. Where do you think that money should come from? You know, because that's a, another level. The money has to come from somewhere because, of course, you need to, it's so expensive to make a new antibiotic. So where it feasible can come from? It's going to end up having to come from a combination of governments and philanthropic sources. You know, it's, none of this stuff is free. You, you know, we, we don't get it by magic. We're going to have to put some money into it. And those, those are the sources that are actually interested in supporting this. And if you will, having antibiotics that create healthy communities is part of what governments want to do. You want healthy human beings going out doing healthy people things and, and supporting that with good infrastructure, clean food, clean water, vaccination, antibiotics when you need them. That's part of making all that happen. Do you think that a lot of the resistance to change the system comes because the people don't think properly about the problem of AMR or about the system as a whole? It's a combination of the two, but the ideas are, are they're not immediately obvious, and it takes some time. You've got to be willing to put some time into thinking about this. And also the language that we use to describe antibiotic resistance. It's been important that we, the community, develop language that is appropriate to the non-scientist. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I started learning to talk about this, I, I mean, I, I'm a techie geek, okay? <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a scientist. And, and it's been hard for me to learn to turn that off and to turn it into language that a finance minister will understand. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm not an economist, but I have learned to use certain words to talk kind of like an economist at the right time. And it's by enlarging the echo chamber of the conversation to include other stakeholders. The ministers of finance really need to understand antimicrobial resistance, but I have to talk to them using their language. And one of the things Drive AB did was help us invent the idea of, you know, like the idea that I used earlier, antibiotics are the fire extinguishers of medicine. Five years ago, I didn't know to say that. Okay. No one had ever said that before. No. That came out of Drive AB. We invented that in the middle. We were, there's a bunch of, we're talking in the hall and it, that's where it came from was we had economists and lawyers, all these different people talking and the shorthand that emerged was antibiotics are the fire extinguishers of medicine, which is instantly clear to so many people. Yeah, so using analogies to real-world understood concepts can really help out people good story, understand. Good storytelling. Good storytelling, right. yeah. Right. We talk about, we, we had an interview with a historian that works um, also with a lot of awareness of AMR or infectious diseases. And he always points that historians have an advantage because they are trained to be storytellers. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And scientists are, we're a very particular kind of storyteller and it doesn't, doesn't necessarily go very broad. So the learning to tell the story that works for other stakeholders and finding those stakeholders and getting them to listen. That's been a big part of it. It's, you know, like journalism. It's really important that there's an increasingly there's a literature. You find a story about antimicrobial resistance in, in the newspaper, in, in an ordinary day-to-day magazine. There'll be a story about antimicrobial resistance. I opened up a, a, a magazine about taking care of your horse. It was in the dentist office about horse care. And there was an article about antimicrobial resistance and your horse. Well, good. You know, it sort of spreads the word. Yeah. How, how do you think that information out there is accurate? Because there's always this thing between, yeah. like, you know, journalists want it to be a little bit more on the sensational side. They want to talk about things that people, you know, maybe different strategies. Do you think uh, the non-scientific community is doing a good service? In this regard? Uh, yeah, I, I do. I think we've, we have had, I don't, I don't know that I've read a story about antimicrobial resistance that I thought was wrong. Yeah. The people who get interested in it, those journalists have, you know, they've generally been willing to take a little bit of time to learn about it. And, you know, and there are a fair number of them now that are consistently writing stories. And those stories then educate other people. So I, yeah, I feel like the core messages are the stories increasingly well and clearly told by a variety of different sources. And that, I think, has helped a lot. So I got to know actually about you through the initiative that you started to bring together information or gather information and filter information to the stakeholder community and the scientists, the AMR Solutions website that you have and your newsletter. 
which is uh, now famous. <laughs> Where did that idea came from? Did you? Was it like a specific <laughs> it moment? Was, it was an accident. I mean, yeah, I, but this is this is I, the interesting. I never thing. meant to be sending out a newsletter, and I, and it started. I don't at this point. I don't remember exactly how it came together. There was not one moment in time, but. It, but I needed to be able to share information about some events that were happening. So, uh, Carbex was doing some educational things. And I, it started with this small list, and I, I just kind of kept adding to it. And so at this point, it's, it's my vehicle for telling people about things that I think are important. And it, it doesn't have a schedule. <laughs> just It's when I have something that I think is worth knowing, I send out a newsletter. But it's really valuable because you, not only you have the background to understand the things, but also to focus it and say, okay, you guys, now this is important. For example, I remember with the, with the indicator for the sustainable development goals, the new proposed indicator, and you have the capability to then make these things that might not get to some people to actually react to them. And so it, it's growing. And I know a lot of people that know about it. And it's like, I want to be in that newsletter. I want to know. And certainly for our center and for uh, gathering information that might be important or uh, interesting for our listeners, it's been great. So yeah, I want to thank you. <laughs> well, well, th thanks for the feedback. I'm glad you find it useful. I, I learned a lot by writing the newsletter. And you know, when I do them, I, I don't I want to say why it's, I would say what it is and then why should you care? And that's sort of my test of a newsletter is there needs to be some reason why other people would care to hear this idea and to put it in context. So it's been, it's been an interesting activity. It's not something I planned to do, but you know, there we go. But do you enjoy it? I yeah, guess. I, yeah. I, I learn a lot by writing them. You know, I, I really do. Great. Is there anything that you would like our audience to know particularly about your field or AMR? Our audience is pretty, very wide, and we have people that are working in science, people that are clinicians, people that are in general interested to AMR, and all around the world as well. So, The thing that the community, all of us, can contribute to pushing back against AMR, and what each individual can do, is it varies by kind of where you are in the ecosystem. But at the very least, you know, a shared awareness of the problem of antimicrobial resistance and the need to actually treat it as a system-level problem. And it begins with, what are the things we can do that prevent infections that aren't about antibiotics? Clean food, clean water, vaccination. You know, those three things should be done everywhere in the world. You know, the idea that antibiotics, as Raman and Lakshman Ryan likes to say, People have used antibiotics as a substitute for clean food, clean mm -hmm. water, and vaccination. And that's not acceptable. For a long time, the antibiotics worked, but we've, but that's not the right way to do it. We actually need to do the correct thing rather than the easy thing. And I think that, that telling that story and just being interested in the science and spreading the, the message in whatever setting is appropriate for you is the thing that the broader community can contribute to this. There is something that we like to ask all the people that pass through the AMR studio because we are really focused about this multidisciplinarity of the of the AMR field and that there's a lot of multidisciplinary teams that are building up to try to get somewhere you were talking about that you had to talk to economists and um, what do you think is being misunderstood about your field of work in this case infectious diseases or as a doctor that uses antibiotics that has been misunderstood by the rest of the society or the professionals or the population something that's been misunderstood well there's probably more than one thing but a sort of it's, it's a sciencey topic mm -hmm. and it's the issue of why we develop drugs using non-inferiority designs and you know it's a very technical and specific issue but the notion of how antibiotics get developed and the amount of data you can develop around a new antibiotic is a topic that is not understood by most people and you know i said earlier that you know the things that i do every day i'm either developing a drug or making it possible to develop a drug and make it possible to get paid is the third thing but it's that second thing Making it possible to develop a drug also requires other people to recognize that what we do when we develop a drug, that there isn't more that we can do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the interesting thing. There are even questions today about, but I don't want that kind of data. I want this other kind of data. Okay. <laughs> well, and to which my response is often, you can't have it. And, and actually, I'd like it too, but I'd also like a pony. You know, it, it's <laughs> not, 
you can't get there. And I'm not hiding it from you. I'm not, I'm not avoiding doing superiority studies because I'm trying to hide something. I'm actually doing the only thing I can really ethically do. And that's a challenge for the whole community, including the payers right now. Is And that's shifting. The payer community is shifting to understanding that you can't develop certain kinds of data. If you can develop superiority data in antibiotics, it means that people are getting hurt. And, you know, the, there's something that's going wrong in your clinical trials because you've let resistance go so far out ahead of you that you don't actually have good drugs. You want to develop drugs before they're needed. And that requires us to make certain choices about how we develop the drugs. So, you know, that's the thing that I will spend the most of my time explaining and working on is this question of what can you do to develop a new drug and why certain things are not accessible. And we have to work with that. One question that has come out to some discussion is about how much do we tolerate a drug to be toxic or not? When it's compared with, for example, cancer drugs, which are extremely toxic, but still you need them, you want them there. Do you think that the thresholds could or should be changed to allow drugs that might not be very good on the toxic side, but they would actually be able to help out when they are needed? Well, the answer to that is that the threshold is adjusted for toxicity. The question of every approved agent has benefits and has risks and toxicity. And the thing that the agencies look for is the ability to use things in a way that is safe enough relative to the population. And sort of the cleanest demonstration of that concept was the recent legislation that was part of the 21st Century Cures Act in the United States. There's an idea that's called limited population antibacterial and antifungal drug, LPAD, limited population, antibacterial, antifungal drug. And the idea here is, the legislation explicitly says, the legislation says that physicians and their patients will make different choices about risk depending on how difficult the situation is. And risk is also in part how much you know. If a drug's only been studied in a few hundred people, that's different from it's been studied in a few hundred thousand people. So you're willing to take different chances when you're out of choices, you've got a more difficult situation. So we do it all the time. I think it's entirely appropriate. And that's actually the kind of idea we have to use right now in order to approve drugs based on relatively smaller data sets. We're not going to have 10,000 patients worth of safety data. Mm-hmm. Not going to have it. We're going to have 500. And the flip side of that is the physicians need to use them thoughtfully and recognize the limits on what is known. And that, and that's the reason for the idea of limited population drug. It's saying, use it for the limited population. Don't use it for everybody. Use it when you simply must. And that recognizes the risk-benefit ratio that's built into the compound. Okay. Now I understand a little bit better how it works. It's a subtle idea, but it's actually, the truth is, we, we make these trade-offs all the time. Mm-hmm. How much risk are you willing to take for a certain benefit? And it's, you know, it's really clear when you start to lay it out that there are times when you will take a lot of risk, you don't have any other choices, and it's, and your choice of doing nothing clearly leads to a bad outcome. Yeah. Well, we are going to wrap up the interview now. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us. I think our audience are going to really appreciate that you, you made a little time for us. And I hope that everything goes really well with the, your futures endeavors in this topic. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good afternoon. Welcome back. Um, so, Jenny, can you share with us your first thoughts about this interview? So... When I first heard this interview, I was really quite amazed. I mean, he's a very, very good speaker, and he's very good at speaking in a way that everybody understands, I think. I mean, he did point out a few points where he talked about really sciencey stuff, as he says it. Mm-hmm. But uh, in general, he was he's a very much become a comfortable speaker and storyteller in talking about antibiotics. And I think that shows something about how much work he's done in the field and how many different disciplines he's worked with. There's a few things that we wanted to talk about from his interview and uh, one of them is actually something that we've would have liked to talk about earlier, but we've had episodes that haven't had new segments and such. But you did talk about uh, pharmaceutical companies that have gone under after they've released antibiotics to market, including a Kagen, for example. And in late 2019, another company in a similar situation uh, filed for bankruptcy, Melinta Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. 
And as I said, we haven't had the chance to talk about this. It's a little bit past the time now, so we're not going to talk about it too much. But there is a really great uh, Wall Street Journal article that includes a podcast episode or like a recording that I really Mm -hmm. think if you want to know more, please take a look at that. There's a lot of information out there, but we might link to a few things. But it was a a little bit of an eye opener again for what the problem is. I mean, these are antibiotics that went to market. They went all the way through the clinical trials and then hit problems once they were already on market. And uh, Ava, you and Dr. X talk a lot about that. The issues that face antibiotics once they've hit the market, that these are not things you want to use. You can't reimburse them in the same way either. You can't reimburse them for every time they're used. You know, they have to kind of be there. This whole fire extinguisher yeah. analogy. I, actually, during this course, I learned something that I was not familiar with before. And it's the amount of days even that an antibiotic can be on the shelf, not even used once from the moment that it hits the market. That was kind of like shocking for yeah. me to hear. And it, it totally makes sense. Mm-hmm. And makes sense uh, when you hear him talking about um, that we really want them as... Yeah, as a as society. I mean, we want these drugs. We don't want them to be used. We want them to be there, just as he said and you said. Uh, but it doesn't really work in the current pay model. Mm, exactly. Mm-hmm. But he did mention one of the initiatives to counteract this. So he talked about Drive AB. Yes. And Eva, could you tell us a little bit more about yeah, this Yeah, we wanted to just mention a little bit more about Drive AB, uh, not only because it was like a big initiative that was looking into how can we change the economic models and the incentives regarding research and development of new antibiotics, but also because uh, Uppsala University was heavily involved in this as well. We had yeah. several partners that are now part of the Uppsala Antibiotic Center as well that work on this extensively. This project is within the European Innovative Medicines Initiative of the EU Commission. And this was part of a consortium of 16 public sector partners and seven pharmaceutical companies that were looking into, you know, how, what can we do to change this and make things work for new drugs to come into the market. Yeah, yeah so we briefly wanted to mention this was a project that ran for a few years for, from 2014 to end product which was a big report was published in 2018 mm-hmm. um, we already talked a little bit about this that we know now that the market can probably work better when we have both pull incentives and push incentives mm-hmm. so it has to be like a balance of these two type of yeah. incentives we've talked about these incentives before some that are you know pushing for new drugs to be produced and some that are kind of I mean, yeah, yeah, so there's like the two types. It's the push money will be the one that kind of brings the things in and the pool money will be once the things are in the market, how are you rewarding that yeah. these things exist in the market and can be used in the market? And how linking sales with uh, profit is not a model that works for antibiotics no. any longer. So that kind of pool incentive, which is you sell more, you get more money, it doesn't really work. So what are the other options? And um, basically, the whole work of the Drive AV, in the end, it came out with four main incentives that can effectively stimulate the antibiotic pipeline and ensure that critical antibiotics actually can be accessible and be used sustainably. And these four main incentives are grants, which are non-repayable funds for research and development given to academic institutions, companies, and other institutions that can be working on this. Two would be pipeline coordinators, and these are governmental or non-profit organizations that can closely track the antibiotic pipeline, identify the gaps, and actively support the research and development projects, both financially but also technically. Three would be market entry rewards, and these kind of are the pool incentives, right? It's a series of financial payments to an antibiotic developer for successfully achieving regulatory approval steps when they actually meet a specific criteria that has been predefined. And then four will be long-term supply continuity model. And this is the link in the payment to create a predictable supply of important antibiotics. That means that you kind of reward the long-term availability of these drugs. So this is basically a summary of what the work that these people did over the years and they came up with um, these four important or suitable incentives that Mm -hmm. can actually help the market situation. And uh, we wanted also to mention that, of course, this project is finished. This was the report. But the work that came out of this has influenced the way that the market is seen around antibiotics and also even has, I would say, um, it has primed 
further investments from governments to try to look into what yeah. can we do about this. So, for example, the Swedish government and the Swedish public health agency, after this came out, it actually issued a national report saying, okay, what we as the Swedish government can do regarding this. And then that's a further yeah. investigation, further work done on this. There's been more work done after this to kind of keep it going in, in this mindset of what can we do and how can we make this work with the system that we have. Yes, and still this is quite recent, I would say, on this big schemes Absolutely, of things. Yeah. So there is probably have not had enough time to actually have real world implementation. Yeah, it's hard uh, to see all the effects yes. so fast, but that some people have really kind of kept it going. It's, it definitely has had an impact. And possibly also like the way that they present, these are the things that will work. That doesn't mean that the systems are yet in place for these things to be put into, in, yeah. into work. So it is there, but I mean, it's good that the work was done and that these were, were put out there and then possibly will get us somewhere someday. Yeah. And I think something that kind of, I mean, this is a like a side effect of the, working these kind of consortiums and kind of one of the benefits of a center like the UAC here in Uppsala. Just the example that Dr. X brings up of this fire extinguisher analogy, which is so great and so easy to understand and like explaining it as life insurance and all this kind of stuff comes. And he explains it as this came from working with people from different backgrounds and having this multidisciplinary centers that have to talk and it was just you know in the hallway in between things they were talking about it and they came up with these ways of explaining things to different people and it makes sense to everybody and it's just this added benefit of these multidisciplinary centers aside from like the central thing that they have been working on they came up with this way that these people can easily talk about the problem to a lot of people and make it understood and it's not often the central point of these centers or the goal of these centers but it's such an added benefit. So there is also a more like scientific jargon word that John Oaks used, and he points out that it is very sciencey. So he talks about in clinical trials and uh, non-inferiority trials mm-hmm. or tests than compared to superiority. And he, I think he explains it pretty well, but just to make it extra clear, uh, we can add a little bit that. Yeah, I think just maybe mentioning why these type of trials yeah. are specifically important when bringing new antibiotics into the market. Mm-hmm. So non-inferiority trials are basically showing that a drug is not worse than another drug. I mm-hmm. mean, instead of saying, in a lot of situations when you're doing drug trials and you're saying this new compound or drug or whatever is better than this other thing that we use. So you're kind of showing that this one is better than what's already out there. And that's a superiority trial. Yeah, superiority design. Yeah. Design, mm-hmm. yeah. That is kind of would maybe be ideal, but what we're looking at with antibiotics is not necessarily that something needs to be better than another. It can be that, that it's, it's equally good, equally good, maybe less toxic. But can it has be added case. benefits. On added some benefits, way. yeah. Or it can even just be a different class of antibiotics. It is as good as one, but it works in a different way. So when bacteria become resistant to the one antibiotic, they probably won't become resistant to this other one. So we have more options. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of specific for antibiotic or I mean I don't think it's specific for antibiotics but it's one of the issues with developing antibiotics is that you're not always looking for a new drug that when is nothing better. else is working yeah, yeah. You, we're trying to kind of hedge our bets so that when maybe some drugs stop working there are already other approved drugs out there that are equally good that work in different ways yes. and have other benefits and also while uh, reading a little bit more about this non-inferiority versus superiority trials I found that it was very interesting that non-superiority trials can also be chosen to be used because of ethical reasons. Because once you are comparing a drug versus either a placebo that does nothing or a drug versus another drug and you're actually looking for a superiority result, that means that a whole group of people are actually going to get a worse result of this trial, which might not be ethical in all cases. No, if you you know that there's going to be a difference, Mm -hmm. then it is questionable to do that sort of thing. you, You bring in, okay, well, how far do you let the trial go? Do you have to stop the trial in advance because you see a benefit? What are the consequences yeah. of having less effect? Yeah. Um, yeah. So this, we just wanted to Yeah, just to clarify why. a little bit mm. what it is. And I mean, I think he does a good point of explaining, you mm. know, if we get to superiority data, then there's already something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like we want to be at this stage with non-inferiority, kind of, that it, that is, there's a point to it. And of course, when we're talking about non-inferiority trials, 
things might be a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Uh, understanding the results of the study, you had to choose the threshold values. It's much easier to look at two samples and say this one is better than this other one. Mm. It's much more straightforward. It's not like that with non-superiority, no. but still it is something that we need to work on. Yeah. And just a, another little thing. I didn't know about the new regulations in the U.S. that he brought up at the end talking about, um, yeah, the the limited population. Um, I don't remember the exact name, but he talks about this new regulation in the U.S. And uh, it's basically looking at like new risk benefit regulations. So for small populations, there might be a need for a drug that's more toxic, for example, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And I thought it was really interesting. I mean, this is something that we've kind of talked about before. It puts a lot of weight on the physician to make a choice for the individual patient, but I think there's definitely I mean, physicians that are asking for this, that, you know, for, you know, for this specific patient, I maybe need another drug than the standard, but everything, like, for almost everybody else, this works. And it's nice that, I mean, it seems like some of the regulation is starting to kind of be adjusted for real-life situations. Mm-hmm. To wrap it up here, um, Ava, you mentioned also John Rex's wonderful newsletter. Yeah, I mean, I had to ask him about yeah. it because it's been so useful to us. And yeah. when We've I definitely used it in the podcast before, and it's helped us find articles to talk about in the news. And no. also has helped us understand things. Exactly. He just he words things in such a way that makes it very easy for us to then explain it. Yes. And So, of course, we're going to leave a link yeah. to the website, which has a link to subscribe to the newsletter mm-hmm. if you want. I highly recommend you do. Yes. You might also hear here things that... Will also be present in the yeah. in the newsletter. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a really good mm-hmm. and entertaining even, even though it's like he's talking about very scientific issues and also about um, economical issues and anything related to to research and development yeah. in antibiotics. Um, but it's really mm-hmm. and it's way more up to date. I mean, we do monthly episodes and we f- take care of them one month ahead of time. I mean, it's we're not as up to date. As he is, there you get the news right away. You get whatever you need. Yeah, if something big happens, you he know will within a few days, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Highly recommended newsletter. Great. <laughs> All right. With that, I think we'll move on to the news. Yeah. See you. Welcome to the news section. Uh, we have a couple of articles today that we'd like to talk about. Um, starting with one that's actually by one of the contributors was actually our interviewee. Uh, yes. Evo, do you want to tell us about this one? Yes, we thought it would be interesting to to mention this. It's a very short, uh, more or less letter to the editor yeah. that replied to an, a published article. So in 2019, there was a published article by Benjamin Rome and Aaron Kasselheim in Clinical Infectious Diseases Journal with the title Transferable Market Exclusivity Extensions to Promote Antibiotic Development. An economic analysis. And basically, this is um, an article that looked from an economic standpoint if transferable market exclusivity extensions are worth the while or not. These transferable market exclusivity extensions, basically, it's one of these incentives that we are talking here quite often in, mm-hmm. the, in the podcast, one of these ways of trying to get more companies to stay in the antibiotic development scene because this would mean that an antibiotic will stay proprietary to a company for a longer time than it would normally be. And that also means that higher prices can keep for a little bit longer trying to get a return on investment for a longer time for a company. This is basically the setup of that. So these authors were basically looking into some uh, antibiotics that have been brought into the market in the recent times. As an example of how these exclusivity extensions will work. So yeah. looking at the values of these antibiotics that have been recently in the market. And they did some calculations, of course, economic standpoint, and then come up with a result that these exclusivity extensions will cost the government and the public about $4.5 billion over 10 years if mm-hmm. these vouchers would kind of assist, right? That's yeah. a hypothetical situation. And that was kind of the paper looking into that and this is yeah. a result. Basically saying that this isn't a very effective way of doing it. That's kind of what they're they were implying. Yeah, right? that is an expensive yeah. way for the government and for the public to uh, promote antibiotic development. Yeah. And then the reply that came from yes. some authors we recognize the names from from previous episodes. Yeah, so the this reply is actually leadered by Helen Boucher from the 
Taft Center of Integrated Management of Antimicrobial Resistance in Boston, mm-hmm. but it's also co-authored by some people that we know, like yeah. John Rex that we had today in the episode, and also Kevin Alderson, which is the executive director at uh, Carvex. So this reply to the previous mentioned article is titled Antibiotic Development Incentives that Reflect Societal Value of Antibiotics. And basically what they are arguing or saying is that these authors that published this economic review of the vouchers are just basically only looking at the monetary value of these vouchers without having in account that there's also a huge societal value that will come from having these antibiotics in the market and available for use. And what they argue is that if we actually have the societal value in account, there will be a huge return on investment of this calculated $4.5 billion over 10 years actually will yield a $29 billion in societal value when they what they actually do is to calculate not only the monetary value mm-hmm. of these antibiotics, but also societal value that comes from the calculations of some previous uh, authors have done. Uh, so, yeah, what they say is that this $4.5 billion cost actually would return on investment $29 billion if you count both the economical and the societal value yeah. together. So basically saying, I mean, what, what is it worth it to society to have these antibiotics available yes. more than just straight up? Money. <laughs> yes, and in this commentary, of course, they mention what he mentioned in the interview about that the value of the antibiotics is in existing, not really in using it. This yeah. uh, analogy of the fire extinguisher, they also comment, like mm-hmm. they write about it here as well. So, yeah, as we said before, this is a different way of looking yeah. into what an antibiotic is, what an antibiotic value has. And so, yeah, we thought it was interesting to, yeah. to mention it. It ties a lot into what he's been talking about. And what we talked about as well. Yes, so we will actually leave both of the articles uh, in the show notes so we, you can take a look at it. And this reply is very, very short, but it's very mm-hmm. concise and very to the point. Yes, so now we change topics a little bit. So we're yeah. not talk about economy anymore, but we're going to also talk about something that Dr. Rex mentioned in the interview and we talk a little bit about. I asked him if he thinks that the journalists and the general media are doing a good service to the AMR community when it comes to, to present the problem to the general public. And we talk a little bit about that we need to change the narratives, that we need to find ways to be able to talk to the public in relatable ways, etc. So we have a very exciting article to talk about because it really looks scientifically into this, which is the AMR position in the media, in the general Mm -hmm. media. This is an original research article published in Sage Open by Gabriela Capurro with the title Superbugs in the Risk Society, Assessing the Reflexive Function of North American Newspaper Coverage on Antimicrobial Resistance. And this, of course, is quite biased because it's looking only into North American media. But it's an example of a very in-depth analysis of how the media actually portrays AMR. And in the context of risk society, which is something that took me a little bit of time to understand. It wasn't that easy for me to, to know what she actually meant to look into the news within this context and mm-hmm. in this light, but I'm going to try to explain it a little bit. So basically, the author is looking into how the newspaper play or not play a role into uh, how the public understands the risk of AMR as a modern risk. And mm-hmm. a modern risk is basically a risk that comes because of the world we live in today, which means it's a risk that comes because of the governmental status, because of the industrialization era that we lived in, because of the modern medicine capabilities, etc. Yeah. So it's a, a kind of a man-made problem, but with natural, I mean, in this case, it's a natural base, but it's kind of a man-made problem. Exactly. It's basically itself. a risk that exists because... It's basically an anthropogenic risk. So it actually comes because of us. Of humans. (laughs) Yes, of humans. So can you, Jenny, maybe tell us a little bit how she actually set up to study this? Yeah. So so the author was looking at four newspapers, two in Canada, two in the U.S., uh, the Globe and Mail and the National Post in Canada, and the New York Times and the Washington Post in the U.S. So these are some big, I think she almost calls them elite yeah, and newspapers in North America. She also wanted to, to choose some papers that have both print presence and also a huge online presence because yeah. nowadays a lot of people get their news through the online exactly. media. So these have both big print and daily news, or daily online news presence. And there she's looking at five research questions. She's looking at how do the newspapers define AMR and its causes? 
who is considered at risk of resistant infections, who is deemed responsible for managing AMR, so antimicrobial resistance, in the news coverage, which prevention measures are suggested to minimize the risk of acquiring or spreading resistant infections, and does the newspaper coverage of AMR express reflexive modernization, which is basically what Ava was explaining earlier. Uh, She looked at this over one year of time, and this was six months before and after the big UN meeting in 2016, the high-level meeting on AMR. So basically kind of seeing how that also affected things. And I think we can maybe go through the results because this is like quite a quantitative analysis as well. Yeah. Because she she looked into basically presence of absence of these concepts in the media coverage. And then she also looked a little bit more into frequencies as well. Yeah, she looked at 89 articles in total that she found. There were different kinds of articles and she was basically like grading, you know, do they contain this? Do they contain this? And coding them in different ways, depending on what she found in these articles. And then she it's a lot of frequencies here. But we're going to bring up some of the more interesting ones that we thought. And the key, might be, results, the key results, we think. Yeah. But to start with some positive things that she found, in general, the newspapers were drifting, as she says, drifting away from the superbug frame. So it, we've talked about this before, the problematic way that we describe resistant bacteria or bacteria in general or infections like the super infections and combating and all that kind of stuff. This is kind of being drifted away. At least they're not using the word superbugs much anymore. Only 10% of the articles described humans as being at war with resistant bacteria, which is less than it's been. We think this is very important and this is relevant because yeah. it's really bad inciting fear. And specifically, it's very bad inciting fear towards microorganisms where they are such a important part of our health as well, mm-hmm. not only exactly. our disease. And she said in general, I mean, more than half of the coverage didn't use these anxiety-inducing frames, as she describes it, and instead uses more informative and non-belligerent language, which is a a good step forward. I mean, the more informative, proper, really trying to explain the concept. So while she pointed out that it was a negative thing, that only a third of the news coverage didn't mention anything about prevention measures, she did point out that this is an improvement, that two-thirds of the articles actually did cover some sort of prevention. Now, this is a little bit nuanced. A lot of the prevention that was mentioned was on like a, not an individual level. So not what can this individual reader do about it, but more what society as a whole can do to change. Yes, which she also points out that maybe that might leave the readers a little bit empowered and not really knowing what to do about this situation. But still, it is an improvement that they talk about what could be done. Mm -hmm as a society or from the governments or from the pharmaceutical companies, etc. Yeah. These were positive things of the analysis she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we read the discussion that she has in the end of the article, in general, things could be better. Yeah, so, there's a lot of room for improvement. Yes, there's a, room, a lot of room for improvement because in general, she argues that AMR is being communicated through inaccurate definitions and incomplete accounts, that there is not enough explanation of what really antimicrobial or antibiotic resistant is in, yeah. this, in these examples. That a lot there of is, super infection and that sort of thing still Yes, exists. and that the mechanisms and the fact that it's an evolutionary process is not mentioned almost at all, which I personally can understand because evolution is such a controversial point in some other ways mm-hmm. to present it in the media so I can understand And just that very hard to explain. A part that is very hard to yeah. explain I think journalists might actually be a bit like whoa maybe we don't want to use the word evolution first because we don't really understand how it works and we cannot explain it in an easy way mm-hmm. but also because some readers might actually just completely stop reading because yeah. of this. So I, I, I think it's a difficult thing to bring up. Mm-hmm. And uh, she also po- points out that the coverage did not mention the causes of AMR and that when they do actually is more of a general overuse of antibiotics as the main cause without really going into details of how, yeah. uh, what are the causes. Or focusing on like one specific thing rather than, I mean, it's a very complex and multifaceted issue. If you take overuse, I mean, there's human use, there's medical, there's reasonable use, therapeutic use, there's uh, preemptive use. I mean, there's all these different kinds of use and she, it's very oversimplified when it's, it is yeah. brought up. Yeah. And then the readers might actually think that it's their fault because it's just general use. Yeah. And last but not least, she also actually looked into all this news coverage if they were actually talking about the UN's plans to have a global action plan for AMR. And she only found eight of them that did, which she argues can also diminish the global nature of this modern risk and how the solutions should actually come from a collective and global nature rather than a national uh, level. 
And also maybe, I mean, if people don't realize that there is a global effort already, they might be a little bit disheartened. While it's nice to emphasize the positives that are happening, the things that are actually happening now. So uh, this was, of course, an, an analysis done of the news published some time ago. Mm-hmm. So I would really like to see how this changes in the future. And also she points out that looking into news coverage of these in radio and TV mm-hmm. could also yield different results. Or yeah, this more is just print media. Better results, yeah. And online and hard copy. Yeah, so this was very interesting. To I thought it was very and- interesting. I was a little bit, because we talked about this when we were also discussing this paper that what role does the media actually play? I mean, I can understand that covering all of these bases that she brings up, all these five questions in every single article. is a lot. It's a lot. It's very dry. And as you brought up earlier, some of these articles aren't specifically about antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, that was something that came up with, uh, like I was thinking about it as I was reading the article, is that a lot of these stories that she analyzed are mostly stories, maybe personal stories that present Mm -hmm. like health issues of someone. And then on the sidelines, they say, oh, this person suffered a lot because there was an underlying resistant infection. And then that they don't take the opportunity to explain what resistant is, how does it work, what can we do about it? But really, that's not the focus of that article, is it? Mm -hmm. And I mean, the articles can serve different purposes. There can be ones that are just bringing up the problem, bringing up that something's being done maybe that sort of thing. And then there can be other ones where they're really looking at, oh, this specific bug is causing this epidemic-like infection in some hospital, and this is how it came, this is how resistance arises, and this is what you personally can do, and that sort of thing. But like these different articles serve different purposes, and I feel like it might be kind of hard to draw them all over the same comb, mm-hmm. kind of require the same thing from all of them, you know? But then again, how else are like it's really important to do these kinds of studies to look at how things are actually done. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was a bad study. I just think it's interesting to reflect about how how should it be? How yeah, do we not, think not it definitely be? not a bad study. Super interesting yeah. to look how. And I think the only thing is that now we don't really know the other side, right? Like, yeah. how is it taken on the readership, and if the readership actually agrees that these articles might not have enough information. They leave them with a sense of fear. They actually made them feel like they are not able to do anything about the problem. So that's kind of the other side. So Mm -hmm. we are looking into what we think they're doing. Then what is the impact really on the readership is something we're missing. Now we move on to a much more, how do you say, hard science. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to use those words, but uh, natural science paper. So actually looking at a resistance mechanism, or in this case, actually a mechanism that kind of works the other way. Yeah, so we thought because of this that it was very interesting to bring to you this very hardcore science paper because it actually brings up a concept that we have not talked about before in the podcast and that is a little bit the opposite of uh, cross-resistance, which we have talked about. Mm-hmm. That means a resistance to a certain antibiotic gives you resistance to another antibiotic. But now we here we have the opposite. So Jenny, yeah. can you introduce this new concept to our audience and then we go deep into what they were looking into? Yeah, so I'm going to start with the title of the paper. So this paper uh, was called Molecular Mechanisms of Collateral Sensitivity to the Antibiotic Nitrofuridin. It was published by Roderick Romhild, Marius Linkevicius, and Don Anderson. And I should also mention, these are colleagues of mine and my boss. So And Don Anderson is the director Don of the UAC, is so this is one UAC. more reason why so to this present this. <laughs> a little bit internal, but it's fun. It's a good article, and we really thought it was fun to present. It was published in January in Plus Biology. So this concept that they're looking at, collateral sensitivity, is, like Ava said, it's basically the opposite of cross-resistance. So while certain ways that a bacteria become resistant to an antibiotic can mean that they also become resistant to other antibiotics. If they function the same way or target the same thing, maybe it's a general stop of antibiotics entering a cell. But this kind of works the opposite way. So if a bacteria becomes resistant to an antibiotic, there can be a sort of trade-off, meaning that it loses the ability to be resistant to a different antibiotic. So or it becomes, resistant or susceptible to a specific level. Yeah, it basically becomes more sensitive mm-hmm. to an antibiotic and more susceptible. Mm-hmm. So these words sen- sensitive and susceptible tend to be intertwined. We might intertwine them here. Basically, yeah. it means that it gets more affected by a given antibiotic. Exactly. That's a good way of explaining it. Um, this, this phenomenon has been known to exist for quite a while, but we actually don't know really why this happens. Yeah. So it was basically a little bit of a mystery. It's like, yeah, we, we have this bacteria that is resistant to this antibiotic, and then when it's resistant to this antibiotic, it kind of becomes more sensitive to this other one. Yeah. But why does it happen was a little bit of a gray area. Mm-hmm. And this is what, what we want to know. 
And they're a little bit looking like, is there is this something that we can use? If we know that a bacteria becomes resistant to this antibiotic, it's likely to become sensitive to this one. Maybe we can switch yeah. treatment. So we can, we can use that knowledge. We can predict this sort of thing, yeah. So what they looked at was three different bacterial strains, two E. coli and one salmonella. The two E. coli strains were, one was resistant to tagacycline and one was resistant to micillinum. So it's a tetracycline antibiotic and a beta-lactam antibiotic, if you care what those types are. They have different mechanisms, simply put. Uh, one targets the way proteins are made in a cell, and the other one targets the actual cell's wall. The cell growth, yeah. yeah. And then the Salmonella enterica strain was resistant to protamine. Protamine disrupts the membranes of the cell, so also kind of functioning on the, the structure of the cell. Uh, these were had different ways that they become antibiotic-resistant to these different antibiotics. They were through these point mutations or different sorts of disruptions and worked in different ways. But in general, what they saw was that all of these strains had an increased susceptibility to nitrofurantoin, so they became more sensitive. And we should mention that nitrofurantoin is uh, interesting to study because it's one of the first-line antibiotics that is used for uncomplicated urinary tract infections. So it's actually hugely used uh, worldwide for yeah. this purpose. And it's being more used because resistance actually isn't that common for nitrofurantoin. Mm -hmm. And it's a very old antibiotic, which makes it interesting, the fact that we don't actually know exactly how it works. That doesn't happen on new antibiotics. You have to know how they work. <laughs> so one of the interesting things in the study is since they don't actually know how it works, it's kind of interesting to see why it's affected in this way by these resistance mechanisms towards other antibiotics. So in general, there's two ways that they kind of hypothesize as ways that bacteria can become more sensitive to an antibiotic. There can either be an increase of the antibiotic in the cell, so basically just increasing the concentration within the cell, or there can be something that makes the antibiotic in the cell more toxic, so basically that the antibiotic has a stronger effect on the cell without there necessarily being more. And in this paper, they first look at the actual quantities of antibiotic in the cell, so they're tagging the antibiotic in a radio label, so basically you can tell where the antibiotic is, if it's in the cell or not. And they see that for some of these bacteria, there were there was an increase in the amount of antibiotic present. And that happened for the salmonella strain that was resistant to protamine, which is explains part of why it's become more sensitive. That can definitely explain part of it. But for the two E. coli strains, it's not about an increase in intracellular concentration. There is no more antibiotic in the cell. However, another thing that makes this specific, specific antibiotic nitrofuridin interesting is that it's not actually functional in its original form, it has to be activated in the cell. So there are certain enzymes in the cell that activate the antibiotic and make it functional, so it actually produces this killing property of the antibiotic in the cell. So next they were looking at maybe there's an increase of these enzymes that activate the drug. So you're, instead of there needing to be more of it in the cell, more of it is becoming activated, which is the crucial part. In general, they found that all these three mutants had increasing expression of these enzymes to different levels for the different ones. But in general, this could definitely be part of it. But this couldn't explain the full sensitivity. So there is definitely something else there as well, especially for this um, E. coli strain that was resistant to tigacycline. So they moved on then and tried to see if there's maybe an increase in the toxic effect. So the way that this specific E. coli was resistant to tigacycline was associated with part of a response mechanism in the cell, which is basically activated when the cell is feeling some sort of stress. It's called the SOS response. And this is one of those things that happens when, with nitrofuridin. Nitrofuridin can cause an SOS response or the stress response. Basically, it means that so this mutation in the cell that was affecting this stress response mechanism was then causing an increased problem with the stress response that came from this other drug. So increasing the sensitivity to this other drug in that case. So it was this balance between, you know, there's more active drug in the cell, and it's also causing a stronger effect because of this mutation that gives mm -hmm. resistance to a different antibiotic. However, one of the downsides with this is that they found that these are very specific things, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the, I mean, all resistance to tigacycline, for example, is not caused by this kind of mutation. So it's kind of specific to what's causing the resistance so it really to the first antibiotic. So it really depends of the resistant mechanism yeah. in particular. You cannot even generalize to a specific antibiotic. Mm -hmm. You have to really know what's the resistant mechanism in order to understand the collateral sensitivity process in general. Yeah. So that means that supposedly, hypothetically, if we want to put this information into consideration when we're deciding on a course mm -hmm. of antibiotics or treatment, we will have to know in specifically which way an antibacteria yeah. is resistant. Or at least have some idea of how common it is. I mean, if half the time it's this kind of thing, half the time it's this kind of thing, 
you could maybe do a cocktail of two that would drugs be an or empirical something. Way, yeah. yeah, an empirical way of doing it. You could kind of combine these things, what we know and what we see in, mm-hmm. in patients through surveillance and that sort of thing. So it could still definitely be important. And it's really interesting that they did this in this paper and really looked at why this is happening. I think it's really cool that they yeah. actually found, like, how does it actually mm-hmm. work? It's been for quite some time um, somewhat mystery, yeah. right? But now we can still now put names. It's like, okay, this is happening because of this process and it is essential for these other functions. So yeah. it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and this article is open access. So anyone who wants to look at it, there's more details that we didn't really cover now. And probably reading it might help you really understand it because it's hard to explain some of these things in general. Uh, So we'll leave a link to the article in our show notes as well. But with this, we are done for this month. It was a bit more news heavy this time. Um, We haven't had news for a while, so it's exciting. Yeah, that's true. We were very (laughs) excited to bring to you the latest out there. And we hope you are back with us uh, on our next regular episode, the beginning of April. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.